Welcome to A Tribe Called Yes, the podcast that brings you closer to the world's most notorious risk takers, trailblazers, and enemies of the status quo. Now, here's your host, Darren K. Roberts. Hola, tribe. Welcome, Brandy Savarese, a woman who is a true queen of all trades and a textbook renaissance woman. She has degrees in Italian and art history from the University of Georgia. Go Bulldogs. Dogs. And a master's in architectural history from UVA. And she survived a year-long tour of duty as the editor for my book, Call an Audible. She began her career in publishing with a particular focus on acquiring and developing books in the fine arts. She's an expert in imprint and brand development, and she's currently crafting her next steps. But one pursuit seems certain, training and competing her off-the-track thoroughbred clue. Welcome to the Tribe, Brandy. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Darren. Good to have you. Okay, I'm going to jump right into this. So, I walk into your 11th grade English class, pull you out into the hallway and ask you, what are you going to be when you grow up? What's the answer? Well... 11th grade was my last year in high school. Oh. Yeah. We lived in Turkey. And it just sort of seemed like not a great idea to come back to the States and do a senior year. So I kind of doubled up in my 11th grade year and finished early. But if you had called me out of class, I would have first said, what did I do? <laughs> Were you a troublemaker? Uh, I will... I wasn't especially engaged in high school, hmm. let me say. But I would have said, well, I want to be a professional equestrian and also maybe an art historian. Hmm. Neither of those were especially bright ideas. <laughs> Why not? Well, what's wrong with that? They're not especially well. <laughs> realistic. Fortunately for me, I can say that both are still somewhat present in my life. So they weren't total wasted pursuits. Yeah, I mean, you are an equestrian, so you're halfway there. Yeah. What took your family to Turkey? My parents were both active duty Air Force, mm. and we were stationed in Injerlik, Turkey, right after the end of the first Gulf War. Hmm. Yep. How did that experience impact you? So you were there for most of you. How many years? I was there for two years. For two years. Yep. And I had done my first year of high school in New Mexico. Hmm. Yeah. Was it easy to make friends? So you moved around quite a bit. Yeah, I moved around a lot. And, you know, honestly, not as much as most military kids, mm. not as much as most military families, because both of my parents were active duty. So it was more complicated to move us around. We didn't get the best assignments. Turkey after the Gulf War was maybe not the best assignment. <laughs> But it was challenging. It was really challenging to move around. And I'm an only child, so that kind of complicated things a little bit more. You know, I didn't have the experience of navigating brothers and sisters to help me figure out how to navigate making new friendships. So the only child is also trying to navigate what college to attend and what to study. So what did that process look like for you? So with both of my parents being career Air Force, you know, there was definitely the push to go to college. They definitely had that expectation of me, but there wasn't a college culture in my family. I was the first of my generation in my family to actually enroll in a four-year college. And so I noticed my peers 
all scrambling to take their SATs and their ACTs and to send in their applications. And I sort of was like, wait, do you have to apply? You have to, you have to like jump through these hoops to go to college? You can just show up. You just show up. So my parents, we knew at that point that they were going to be stationed in South Carolina. And so I said, well, I guess I'll look at colleges in the South. I was specifically looking for colleges that had an architecture program. Because at that point, I was very interested in architecture and sort of thinking that that could be a way to do the humanities, but also maybe be a little bit more practical. So I applied to Clemson University and was accepted at Clemson and started there. I did my first three semesters of college at Clemson. I was very fortunate to get in because Mm. I did not have the grades at all. You're an intelligent woman. You didn't have the <laughs> grades because was it transition? Was it lack of interest? I don't think it was lack of interest. I think it was an expression of my frustration at moving. Hmm. I think that I didn't know how to cope with the change. And the way I coped with it was kind of being angry and kind of doing the, you know, F you to the establishment. Um, <laughs> so it was a form of protest. You're like, damn the was. man, I'm not going to study for this it, test. It really kind of was a form of protest. Uh, I was very angry to leave New Mexico. I had finally settled. I was riding. I really loved my high school. I loved my peer group. I had finally found a peer group. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I was doing great in school, but I definitely was not happy to leave. And then I think when we moved to Turkey, I just kind of threw my hands up and was like, you know what? Forget it. I was much more interested in music and those kinds of things. And uh, so I didn't study very much. And I scraped by by the skin of my Hmm. teeth. What was Clemson like for you? It was a culture shock for sure. Again, not having that college culture in my family, I didn't understand college football, <laughs> um, which yes, you can yes. probably relate to. So what year is this? What are we talking about? Uh, I started college in 94. Okay. Were they good then? Were I they... have no idea. But but regardless, Boy, there are thousands of folks running around. I mean, and I lived right by Death Valley. Oh, man. It was, it was an intense culture shock. <laughs> and I retreated into studying. I loved being in college. Hmm. I loved it. And not the college experience, in air quotes I'm making. Mm -hmm. I spent all of my time in the library. I could not get enough of studying. I loved it. I was studying Italian. I was studying architectural history. I was taking painting. I just absolutely loved it. So you were the Renaissance woman. You were, I mean, all of the arts. Oh, I so loved foreign it. languages yeah. and art and some architecture. Yeah. You were just, you were deep. In- oh, I did. I just dove right in and I, I could not get enough. Absolutely. Which is why I eventually left Clemson. Clemson did not offer a degree in Italian hmm. uh, or a degree in art or architectural history, which is what I really began to understand I wanted to do. And Georgia did. And I also fell in love with Athens, Georgia. It was could not have been a better place for me to be at that time. And I transferred to Georgia and had truly the most extraordinary college experience. Now, you get to Athens, Georgia, and it's a better academic situation Definitely, for you. Definitely, yeah. 
was there anything pulling you back to Death Valley or were you just all in on Athens? Oh, yeah. No, I, I left Clemson and I never looked back. One thing I did give up when I moved to Georgia was I had a, a riding instructor in Clemson hmm. who I really loved and really enjoyed. And I rode regularly at Clemson. At Georgia, I think because I really was focusing then on my majors and really had a great and nurturing academic experience. I didn't pursue riding for those years in college at Georgia. I eventually cultivated a relationship with a riding instructor near where my parents lived in South Carolina. And that's truly one of the joys of my life is that experience. Mm. But at Georgia, I did not ride full time. And I, I wished that I had. Yeah. What happens? You graduate. What's on Brandy's mind? Graduate school. Boy, I was just hell-bent that I was going to go to graduate school. Again, probably not <laughs> the wisest decision because I decided I was going to be an architectural historian. <laughs> now, how does someone find this? I mean, I'm I'm curious. Like, what Was there an aha kind of spark moment that this was yeah. the path for you? Yeah. Oh, definitely. When I was a student at Georgia, I had a professor. His name is Thomas Polk. And Dr. Polk was not only an art historian, but he was a specialist in architectural history, hmm. specifically of Gothic architecture, which did not interest me in the least. But I did take Dr. Polk's American architecture class. And that was my aha moment was, wow, I can really study architecture and what it means socially and culturally. And that's a relevant pursuit. And there are actually programs that do this. And mm. so it was really thanks to Dr. Polk that I found architectural history and specifically the University of Virginia. We studied Thomas Jefferson's design for the University of Virginia in that class. And it was through that sort of research that I realized that UVA had that architecture school and the architectural history program. So you're just taking a tour through the South. It's South Carolina, <laughs> then it's Georgia, <laughs> then Virginia. What did you think of the people? You know, the South of today is not the South I knew as a college student. Uh, not at all. Mm. Now, it would be unfair to make generalizations based on having lived in Clemson, Athens, and Charlottesville. You know, those are three pretty distinctive college towns with large academic communities. You know, Charlottesville, when I lived there, we joked, was the little blue dot in the red Virginia. <laughs> so I think my experience of the South is maybe skewed slightly, but the South of today is not the South that I knew as a student at all. When do you start writing? Writing, mm -hmm. W-R-I-T-I-N-G. Yes, yes, yes. Writing. It's good that you pointed that out. Writing as opposed to writing. Sure. Yes. I'm not a writer. Hmm. I am not a writer. I, I will tell you the experience of writing my master's thesis hmm. was an incredible experience. And it certainly taught me some best practices that I now impart with writers with whom I work. And I loved writing my master's thesis. But I think what I loved more than anything about writing my master's thesis was the research. I really enjoyed doing the research. A lot of people think that an editor is an editor 
because they love to write or because they have aspirations to be a writer. I don't have that. And I think that's one thing that makes me a good editor Mm. is that I'm not a frustrated writer. I like to nurture what others have to say. I'm pretty great at asking questions. Yes, I can attest to that. So, you know, the experience, and, and maybe that's the researcher in me, is, you know, when I sat down and read your work, I could read it from a perspective of, okay, Daring, you're telling me this information, you're telling me this story, but what I don't understand is this, or what I'm not getting is this. So answer those questions for me, and then we can put it all in the mix and make it a narrative. How many authors would you say you've worked with if you had to just estimate wow. the number? I would definitely say we're in the in the hundreds. I've been in book publishing maybe 10, 15 years. I'd say I'd probably worked with 100, 150 writers. Mm. Not that many. I'm always very interested in like this process of taking thought to paper or keyboard and reading, not liking it, going crazy, coming back, revisiting, shredding up paper. I mean, sure. you've seen the evolution of of writing from several different vantage points. Where do you think people get it wrong? Well, in preparation for this, you asked me some tips. and I, And one of the things I came up with is, you know, it's a lot easier to cut and polish a diamond than it is to make a diamond, Hmm. to organically grow a diamond. Hmm. And, you know, if you think about that diamond analogy a little bit further, when a diamond is mined, that's not the last iteration. That's not its last iteration. It has to be be trimmed. You have to cut off, you know, the bad parts and polish and, and all of that sort of stuff. So it's a lot easier, I think, for an editor to do their work if you have sat down the writer has sat down and done that sort of organic work of putting all of that information on the paper. Because then what we can do is we can trim and we can cut and we can polish. And we do that together. That's a collaborative process. And that gives the writer an opportunity to refine. And maybe there's a new thought and it it comes in and it helps to polish. So I, I really think writers go wrong in trying to present the diamond hmm. in its final polished and cut form. You can't do that. You really can't. I don't know that there's anybody who can do that. Yeah, I think it's tough too, right? Because mm. I think a lot of what leads people to write is because they've they've encountered good writing. Sure. So they're thinking about the finished product. That's right. And it's the coffee table book. And so they want to create something like that. Yep. And there's a tendency, I can just, and I can speak to this from firsthand experience, in trying to create the final text. Yep. And over editing and backspacing and looking for synonyms on a first draft. It right. can It can drive you mad. I'm sure it can. And I think that's great motivation. The motivation to want to put something out there of your own that is that finished and that perfect and that beautiful and and thoughtful and hopefully meaningful to readers. But every single one of those editors has gone through (laughs) that iterative process of, you know, backspacing and not having the right synonym and 
punctuation and spelling and all of those types of grammatical errors, you know, they they all have done that in their first draft. And you're in great company when you're just trying to get it on the paper mm-hmm. and then polish it. When you think of, of good writing that you enjoy consuming, are there some elements that you, whether it's stylistic or otherwise, are there some things that you think just help to make writing good? For me personally, fiction or nonfiction, I really enjoy the first person. You know, that was one thing that was really great about working on your project was you were very much writing about your experience and you wrote about it from a place of ownership. So I felt very invested in your story and in your success or failure wherever we went through your story, you know? So the first person for me personally is very engaging and that's something that gives me a lot of pleasure whether I'm I'm editing or reading. It's true in fiction as well. I, I tend to gravitate toward novels that are written in the first person. Hmm. Remind me again what your question yeah, yeah. was. I was wondering, you know, I'm just thinking about writers that I like take Michael Lewis or Malcolm Gladwell and like for example Malcolm Gladwell just kind of pulls you in yeah like his intros are so powerful they get you hooked yeah Michael Lewis he's an unpredictable writer in many ways just varies up the sentence length and so it's punchy at times and then it gets really long and pedantic and then he goes back and forth yeah so I think what comes to mind in what you just described is writers who are very good at narrative nonfiction And I think that for a lot of nonfiction writers, it becomes very easy to sort of state facts over and over and over again. Or something that a professor in graduate school told me to avoid at all costs was a conspicuous display of sweat. (laughs) You know, reminding your readers how much work you went through to, you know, come up with that fact. It's so tempting though, right? Right? Yeah, you definitely, you want to display, you know, that badge. But you know what? Your reader does not care. Your reader wants a good story. And that's what Michael Lewis does. That's what Malcolm Gladwell does. You know, Malcolm Gladwell... He personalizes, and it's not necessarily Malcolm himself. It's the person who went through the experience that he describes. He personalizes those nonfiction stories, and everything is a story. And so I think it's very important for writers, especially writers of nonfiction, to really think about how they're carrying their reader through the story that they're telling. We talked about that a lot in your book. You were very fortunate. You had a great and really exciting story to tell. We had tension and we had letdown and we had great moments. So your story was kind of an easy one. But I think for everything, you can... You can personalize it in some way. Yeah, forgetting about the reader. It's so, because it's so personal, Mm -hmm. it's easy to forget about, okay. And oftentimes you would come to me and say, what about the reader? Like, I can't, you would say that your position was from the reader's perspective. And Mm -hmm. so that's who you were there to to defend. And you say, hey, there's a gap here. I don't know. You took me from here to here and it doesn't make sense. Damn it, Mandy. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. Like, I'm the the reader's lost here. And it's tough, especially when a work is personal in the sense of it is your own narrative. Sure. To sort of keep that person in mind. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for you or for a reader who's telling their own, I'm sorry, a writer who's telling their own story, there are minutiae that don't matter to you. 
you know, maybe it didn't matter in your mind mm. how you traveled from Mount Pleasant to back to Missouri. But if you just jump from Mount Pleasant back to Missouri, the reader's like, okay, Darren, did, was this a week? Was this a day? Was this just your your driving? And that's a simplistic example, but the the writer has an obligation to their reader to guide them through the story they're telling. So it's very important that even those minute details that don't seem to matter maybe in your memory or your recollection of the experience, you got to carry your reader a little bit and mm. and hold their hand. Maybe that's a nice way to think about it, is you hold your reader's hand as you tell them the story or you guide them through your experience. And so maybe there are some details that are too minute or that aren't worth printing. But again, if we think back to, you know, that first draft, get it all on the page and then let's mm. let's mold it and let's cut it and tailor it so that it's effective for your reader. As an editor, you've worked with writers who've gone MIA. Boy, yeah. <laughs> I, that was the one thing that when we yep. first met, you told me, and I don't, you, don't, you didn't really put a number to it, but you said, hey, a lot of folks start this process and then never come back. That's right. Like off the radar, don't respond to emails, calls, just gone. Yeah. The first time that it happened to you, were you prepared for it and then... I wasn't prepared for it. I don't know that I can actually identify in my memory the first time it happened, but I think it was very clear why it was happening or or it is very when it happens it's very clear what's going on. Hmm. I think two things happen. I think one many people who try to write a book or want to write a book, they don't understand the sweat equity that has to go into actually sitting in front of the computer or sitting in front of the paper and doing the work. And that could take the form of, oh my gosh, I'm putting it on the paper and it's not perfect, so I can't show it to anybody. Hmm. Could be that. Or it could just be, this is really hard work. Hmm. And I don't know that I have the energy, the time, the drive to actually do it. So I think that's one one reason that happens. I think also, and I don't mean to give myself a lot of credit here, that's not what I'm getting to, but I think people love the idea of having an editor. Hmm. And there's kind of a romanticized editor-writer relationship. Hmm. And in that, the editor is given a lot of power, maybe, Hmm. or there's the perception that that editor is going to do a lot of the work. At least that's not what it's like to work with me. (laughs) Because, again, I'm not a writer. I'm not interested in writing your story. I Mm. want you to tell me your story, and I want to help you make that story as perfect and polished and presentable as it can be. Mm. So a lot of writers I've worked with who've gone MIA have been so enthusiastic about working with an editor, and I'm so excited to meet my editor. And when the rubber hits the road... There's no rubber. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so th- that's that's often how that happens and, and what it looks like. Thank you for joining us on a tribe called Yes, and pick up the book that Brandy helped me to write. Call an Audible, Amazon bestseller, and one of Sports Illustrated's top sports business books of 2017. We will see you next week here at the Tribe for part two of Brandy's interview. 
and keep saying yes. Yes.